My name is Karen. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Karen. Super excited to be here with you guys tonight. My sobriety date is um, 11 I have a home group that I share with uh, Denise, who also happens to be my sponsor. Um, I have a second home group, thanks to Zoom online, the Tuesday night Monks and Drunks meeting at the Canyon Club, which is one of my very favorite meetings ever in the whole wide world and has absolutely changed the nature of my sobriety in the last year and a half. So I'm super grateful for it. So um, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because they made me. It was not my idea. Everything was fine. Um, I got a little, I got a little DUI. Um, <laughs> it's a long, well, we'll get there in a minute. But um, I grew up in a, a relatively normal household. My parents are still married. They're a little crazy. My dad's got a drinking problem and my mom's got an opiate problem. But, you know, what else is new? And, um, and uh, they're, they're still married today. They uh, come from that generation where you just stick it out no matter what, and, uh, which I appreciate. I learned some good things from that. Um, we, uh, we moved a lot when I was little. We moved about every two years until I was 12. So I kind of had to start over a lot. I kind of felt awkward and shy. I was super skinny. I was super tall. I got made fun of a lot. I got mistaken for a boy pretty frequently until I was about 15 or 16 years old. And I just kind of always felt a little bit off and a little bit different. Um, I did not drink very much as in high school. Um, although every time I did, I barked or blacked out. I should say that. But um, I, uh, I had a friend in high school that drank a lot and I gave him a hard time about it a lot. He used to call me AA, which now <laughs> is, is, is really funny at the time, um, but, but now it's really funny. But um, I, uh, my parents were stupid. My father especially is a, an old military guy, super strict, a little great Santini-ish. And I grew up in a house with a lot of rules and a lot of expectations and a lot of, um, a, a lot. And uh, I, I moved, I, I left the house when I was 18 years old and uh, lost my mind. I just lost my mind. I went to college. I met a girl that um, was fun and, and, and wild and a little weird. And she introduced me to um, a lot of things. Um, she introduced me to a lot of things. And I, I know this is an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, but I'm just gonna say this one thing. Um, she introduced me to methamphetamine and what that did was allowed me to drink more. Okay, so I spent four years doing that and five years doing that and I stopped and I kept drinking like I did when I was using so that's the only thing I'm going to say about that, but I am going to say that it absolutely expanded my drinking in a way that I don't think it would have otherwise. So by the time that I was um, 27 years old, I'd been divorced three times, I had a baby that didn't belong to any of those dudes. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And, and my life, my life was a mess. My life was a mess. I, I got up and went to work every day and I didn't drink in the morning. So that meant that I wasn't an alcoholic. Um, my first husband told me I drank too much. So I kicked him out. My second, oh. my second husband drank more than I did. So that didn't do very well. And my third husband wasn't old enough to drink when I married him. I thought that would help. <laughs> and that didn't. So, uh, so yeah, so so by the time I stumbled into Alcoholics Anonymous because they made me, I got a DUI. I was gonna um, I was gonna move to Tennessee to live with my third ex husband, and then um, he got a girlfriend, and uh, who probably was a lot more fun than me. And um, and uh, so my going away party turned into an I'm staying party. I planned it very carefully. I am a planner. I had a designated driver because I fully intended to get as completely blasted as I possibly could 
and I wasn't going to drink and drive because that's silly. Although I drove in blackouts all the time, but, um, so, uh, so we had a great time. It was a great party. We had a great time and we stood out in the parking lot about 1:45 in the morning, screwing around for about a half hour. And around the corner from me were um, two of San Bernardino's finest, um, in a car, in a, in a police car watching us be absolutely ridiculous out in the parking lot. And the goal was to get in the car and go to Denny's because as you know, if you are drunk as hell at 1:45 in the morning and you go to Denny's and you eat something, everything's fine after that. And you can go home and get up four, four hours later and it'll all be okay. So uh, we got in the car. Well, my designated driver was too drunk to drive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, I had a designated driver and, and he was too drunk to drive. So we argued for about 15 minutes about who was in better condition to drive. Um, we decided it was me. I got in the car and he had this little tiny Geo Metro with no mirror over here. So I'm getting on in the 10 freeway and I can't look in the mirror to merge. So I'm looking to merge and I'm, I'm not doing a good job. So I get pulled over on the on-ramp to the 10 freeway um, uh, in an outfit that you don't want to go to jail in and, um, and failed my sobriety test miserably. And they were actually really nice police officers. They drove my friend's car to Denny's and left him there. Like they were, they were more than decent. Um, and they put me in the car and they, and they took me to jail. And, um, I, because I grew up in a, in a household that was, um, my dad's a doctor. Like I was kind of a, I was a princess and, um, my first jail experience was a little shocking and, um, they, you know, they took my jewelry and they took my jacket and they fingerprinted me and they put me in a cell with these six other girls. And there was a stainless steel toilet in the middle and I didn't want to pee in front of everybody else, but I really had to go. And, and, um, it, it was, uh, it was a pretty traumatic experience for me. Um, they screwed up my paperwork. They were getting ready to send me upstairs. And, and luckily a friend of mine who happened to be a police officer called to find out what was going on. And we got me straightened out. And what I learned from that experience is that you don't drink and drive. I'm not going to stop drinking because why would I do that? I'm just not going to drink and drive. And then I won't get in these situations. I won't end up having to pee in front of six girls I've never met. Like I won't have these traumatic experiences and it'll all be okay. So I proceeded to just do that for, uh, let's see, how old was I when that happened? I proceeded to drink for a couple more years after that. That definitely didn't stop me. It just sort of changed the nature of my drinking a little bit. By that point, um, my son was Two, I couldn't be the bar party drinker that I used to be, so um, I would drink at home. My significant other worked in the restaurant business. He would um, be gone at night. It was perfect. I didn't have to explain to anybody how much I drank. I'd hide it. I'd basically be blacked out on the couch when he came home, and he would uh, prod me into consciousness and get me into bed, and then I'd wake up the next morning, take a shower, go to work, and do it all and I was miserable and I was scared and I was alone and I was overwhelmed. And I was, I didn't want to feel the way that I felt. I didn't know why I felt the way that I felt. I didn't know there was anything I could do about the way that I felt. And my DUI finally caught up with me. I went to court and they sentenced me to two Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and a three month class where you go to class for three months and learn all about what's wrong with you. <laughs> so, or, you know, just a well, depending on how you take it, you can learn a lot about how to drink better in those classes, but, um, <laughs> or meet connections. It's really, it all depends on how you handle it. But, um, so, so I went to this class, um, I sat down in the back. I think there were probably about 20 of us in there and they told us, uh, okay, for the next three months, you 
aren't supposed to drink. And I thought that was ridiculous. I thought that was ridiculous. Like, it, like what do you, I'm, I'm, this is ridiculous. Like I work hard. I pay my taxes. If I want to have a glass of wine, I didn't even drink wine because it gave me a headache. If I, if I, at that point, I was basically just straight tequila or maybe Yukon Jack with a big beer chaser. Like that was, that was basically what was happening at that point. Um, but I, 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 I'm going to have a drink. I said this out loud, you guys, I'm sorry that the rest of you can't do that, but I'm going to have a drink. And the instructor who I'll never forget, who's about this tall, this little short Egyptian man with a terrible accent got right in my face. And he said, if you can't go three months without having a drink, something's wrong with you. And I said, F you, I can stop drinking anytime I want to. I just have never felt like it. <laughs> so I'm going to go home tonight and I'm not going to drink. I will show this guy that he is full of it, that I do not have a problem, that like I don't drink in the morning. I have a job. I have a car. I can get a man to go home with me from a bar. I am clearly not an alcoholic. And I'm just going to show this guy what's up. So I left the class. I went and picked up my son. Um, again, my significant other wasn't at home. So nobody was in the way of anything that I was going to do, although I wasn't going to do anything. And um, I made him, I don't know, probably chicken nuggets or a hot dog or whatever you feed a two-year-old when you're a drunk alcoholic mom. And I put him in front of the television and I said, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. Ass, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. And I put my kid in the car and I went across the street and got someone to drink because I felt like I was going to come out of my skin. And I just, and, and it terrified me because I had never, I really didn't understand until that moment how much a part of my life it had become, how much of my life it was controlling, how much of how, how uncomfortable and unsettled and awful I felt when it wasn't there for me to, to drink. And it, it just scared me. I just didn't, I really didn't know what to do with myself. And, and, um, I don't think I, I don't think I went back to class and told that guy, I, I'm sure I didn't go back to that class and tell that guy that I didn't have a drink, but I kept going back to class. So a, a little more humble and a little more frightened than I had been when I walked in the first time. And, um, the class was about to wrap up. I hadn't been to my meetings because I didn't want to go to those. And they said, if you don't go to your meetings, we're going to make you take this class again. And I said, well, I certainly don't want to do that. <laughs> so they gave me a directory. I took it home. I lived in Huntington Beach at the time because I had pulled the geographic away from several ex-husbands. And um, um, I got the directory out and I looked at it and I picked a morning meeting because I figured nobody there would recognize me. I did not know a sober person. I don't know why. I would like it was, the thought process as we go through when we're in the fog and we're not thinking clearly or so crazy, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to pick a morning meeting. Nobody there will know me. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to put on all my makeup. I'm going to dress really carefully. Like I need to look like I have my shit together and I'm going to go to this meeting and I'm going to see what it's all about. And I did, and I got there and it was, um, it was, uh, I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with Howe Hall and Huntington Beach, but that's where I got sober. And back when it was in the other location, it was like a long room with a big table in the center. And like, there were a lot of people sitting at the table and there was coffee and, and there was a couple seats by the back door. So I walked in and just kind of snuck into the seat by the back door and people started walking up to me and saying, hi, how are you? And I'm like, what, what is this? Like, what, what is happening? Like, I don't I didn't come here to make friends. Like, I don't like, like, stop it. Can I get you some coffee? Are you, you know, are you like, 
are you new? How do they know I'm new? It's just ridiculous. So I don't remember a lot about my first meeting, except that everybody was very friendly and very welcoming, which was very weird and very overwhelming, but very nice. And I had one more to go to. So I didn't, I didn't go the next day. I think I waited. Oh, the other thing I remember about that meeting is that we're all sitting together and they start going around the room and introducing themselves. And my name is this, I'm an alcoholic. My name is that, I'm, an, I'm like, they are coming to me and I'm gonna have to say something. Like, and they got to me and I said, my name is Karen and I don't know what I am. And they were like, oh honey, keep coming back. And like, oh. and I was like, okay, nobody's gonna kick me out for not saying that I'm an alcoholic. That's awesome. So, um, so I came back to the second meeting and I sat in the back again. And again, people come up and said, Hey, how are you? What's happening? Like, how are you feeling? And I was just like, get away from me. And, um, thank goodness. This girl sat up front at the table where like the serious sober people were sitting and her name was Michelle and she had the most beautiful long red hair. And she told my story. And, and if that's not God, I don't know what is. Cause I didn't have to go anymore after that day. Like that was the last time. And if I hadn't heard her say what she said and she hadn't shared in the way that she did, I don't think that I would have come back. But what she did was she sat up there and she talked about all of the pain that I felt, all of the shame, all of the guilt, all of the dudes, all of the crazy behavior, like all of the, all of it. And she was saying it out loud in front of everybody for starters. Nobody was like, get this whore out of here, you know, like, which I was worried about because I had some things that I wasn't super proud of. Right. But also she was talking in past tense. She was saying, my life used to be like this. I used to black out. I used to go home with guys. I used to do these things. And I was like, wait, you can use to do this. Like, how do you do that? How does that work? How does that, I, like, it, it just, it, it was, it was mind blowing. And it was like, so I went home and I told um, my significant other, I said, I think I need to keep going to these meetings. These people make sense. Like they, I had never heard anybody talk out loud about how I felt inside and everybody in the room was doing that. Like it wasn't just one person. It was, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter like who it was or where they came from or what their story was or how long they'd been there or how little they'd been there. Everybody said, some, said something that made sense to me and made me feel welcome and made me feel accepted. And I had gone a lot of places with a lot of dangerous dudes and a lot of, done a lot of stupid things to feel accepted. Like my favorite thing to do when I was drunk was to pick some strange, scary dude to go home with because I wanted to die and I was too scared to do it myself. But if some psychopath cut me up and left me in a dumpster behind some cheap hotel, that was what I deserved for the way that I was living my life. And I just didn't think it was ever going to be any different than that. So I'm at home and I said, I think I need to keep going to these meetings. These people make sense to me. And I will never forget this. We're in our little kitchen and Huntington Beach and he looks at me and said, you mean you're never going to drink for the rest of your life? And I said, I do not think you are allowed to ask me that question. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, don't, I, like the idea of never drinking again for the rest of my life was so overwhelming and so petrifying and so absolutely impossible to me that I just didn't, I couldn't even entertain it. I just couldn't even do it. And I said, I don't know, but I want to keep going. So I showed up again and they railroaded me into the Monday morning donut commitment. So they knew I'd show up one day a week, right? At least. And, um, and, I, and I kept sort of sitting in the back and I kept sort of like, mm, uh, like but, but just coming and listening and being welcomed, being accepted and, and absorbing what all you guys were saying. And it was probably about 
two weeks in, they were going around the room and they were in, introducing themselves again. And I said, my name's Karen and I'm an alcoholic. And they said, welcome home, welcome home. And I thought, okay, so now what, right? So there are three women in that meeting. Um, I don't like any of them. I don't know them, but I don't like any of them. <laughs> I did not, when I first got sober and I even for a little while after I got sober, I had a hard time with women. I didn't trust them. I didn't like them. Either they wanted what I had or I wanted what they had. And it's, that wasn't how it really was, but it's how I felt, right? So I was not willing to ask a woman to be my sponsor. And what happened is, is this crusty old crabby boat captain stood up about two weeks in and turned around and pointed at me and started talking about what was going to happen to me if I didn't get a sponsor and I didn't start working the steps. And he scared me. And so I went up to him after the meeting and I said, will you work with me? And let me say this. And, and 25 years ago, it was men work with men and women work with women. And there wasn't a lot of like, it was, it was a really big deal, especially in the meeting where I got to. And there are reasons for that. And they are good reasons and they are understandable reasons and they are important reasons, but they're not always true. Okay. So, um, I said, will you work with me? He was old enough to be my dad. I didn't want to sleep with him. I didn't think he was cute. Like all the things that made it possible for me to have a, have a normal working relationship with a sponsor were present. So he said he would be my temporary sponsor. And he took me out for coffee in this restaurant where all the AA people hung out and he opened the big book to the promises and he pushed it across the table at me. And he said, here, read this. Now, first of all, he was freaking me out because he was talking very loud about being alcoholic and everybody could hear us. I didn't understand that most everybody else in the restaurant was, it was the after meeting breakfast crew. You know, it's like the things that, that happen in, in the fellowship. And, and he had me read the promises and I was like, okay, like, you know, okay, these are nice. What about it? And he said, if you, if you come to Alcoholics Anonymous and you work the steps in order to the best of your ability and you do the things that, that we're going to ask you to do one day at a time, these things can happen for you. And I thought he was a liar. I'd done too much. I was too dirty. I was too bad. I had, I had just, I had pushed God away one too many times. There was no way these things were going to happen for me. And I told him so. And he told me to keep coming back and to get started on my steps. And I did. And he made me call him every day. And I hated that. Um, but by about five or six weeks in, I could say hello. And he'd say, what's wrong? Because he, he got used to me. He got used to my tone of voice. He got, he let me cry for about three minutes and then he put me to work. Right. So we get working on the steps. It's time to do my fourth step. I don't want to do it because I don't want to do my fifth step. I don't want to tell anybody about all the stuff that I've done. Like, please, like you, then you're really going to know who I am. And then you're really going to ask me to get out because tons of things. <laughs> and um, we had a fight and he told me that if I didn't do it, I was going to get drunk and he hung up on me. And he made me so mad that I sat down and did it. I'm like that. If you challenge me, I'm going to, and he knew it. By that point, he knew it. He knew if he pushed me in that direction, that way, that I just to show him that I would do it. And I sat down. He had given me the Joe and Charlie worksheets to, to do the steps with. And I sat down and I, and I, and I wrote stuff down. And I wrote down, uh, I wrote, I had a list of resentments. Oh my goodness. And I, and I, and I wrote down those things and I wrote down those people and I wrote down the, I wrote it all down. And then I got to that column that told me what was the matter with me, which I didn't like so much, but he told me that I had to do it or I was not going to stay sober. So I finished it. It took me, honestly, you guys like, and I, everybody's different and that there's no wrong way to do a four step, but I did it in about two and a half hours and I was done. And I called him up and I said, there, are you happy? And he said, Hey, let's do your fifth step. Click. 
<laughs> so I did my two step with the sponsor's wife because it wasn't really appropriate for me to talk about some of the stuff that I had written down, which totally made sense to me. She'd been sober, it seemed like forever. And I sat in her little trailer while she cheated smoked cigarettes and I read all this stuff to her. And she said, oh, honey, I did that. Or, oh, honey, I sponsored two girls that did that. And she took so much of the shame and the guilt and, and the power of all of that ugly stuff off of me. She just took it off because it was like, it, it's just not that bad. I mean, it was, it was bad. It wasn't great, but plenty of other people have done those same things too and have lived to tell about it and have become sober and have, and have had successful, productive lives. The other thing that she made me do while we were together, in addition to going over all of my character defects, is she had me write down some assets. I didn't think I had any. I didn't think there was anything about me that was redeemable or good or, or anything. And I didn't, I, I couldn't find my assets myself. She had to kind of help me dig them out. But she'd say, well, write this down. You know, you're a good listener. Write this down. You, you've been a good friend in, you know, not always clearly, but like, you know, she had me write down three or four things about myself that were good. So I left that. We did um, five, six, and seven all at the same time. And she sent me home to take the book down and look at it, rest for an hour, you know, all those really important instructions that are in there for a really important reason. And she had me go home and do that stuff. And I, so I left that encounter with like, wait, there's some things about me that are good. And it was exciting to me. It was, it was hopeful. My favorite thing about Alcoholics Anonymous is the hope. Like, and it happened immediately, but not all the way when I got there. And, and the thing that I love so much about being sober today is that same thing, it's the hope. Like there's nothing in my life that's too big or too overwhelming or too awful that I need to be completely hopeless about because the program gives me the tools and the fellowship gives me the people to walk through those things. So I moved um, at an hour, and, uh, an hour and a half. No, I'm looking at my, I moved at a year and a half sober um, out to the Inland Empire and I was petrified. How am I gonna stay sober? Like, these are my people. This is my magic place. This is my room. Does it work anywhere else? And what am I gonna do? And my sponsor said, dummy, get a directory and find a meeting and show up. Do the same thing that you're doing now. And I go, okay. So I did, and I picked a 6.30 morning meeting that at the time was in the back of a hospital. Um, so there were pajama people in there, which is always a good reminder of what life is like when you're, um, when you're working on getting sober. And I just did the same thing. And I found, I found a female sponsor, what do you know? You get, you get better and you can talk to women about things. And, um, and, and we got to work. And, and a couple of years later, we had a falling out and this fine, lady over here agreed to be my sponsor and we've walked through like oh my goodness we were the, the three of us were the three musketeers for a while and then things happen and people change and programs change and what you want out of the program changes it is perfectly okay to change a sponsor in your program if you need to because sometimes that stuff happens and it's 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 perfectly okay to do that although be honest about it don't cheat on them tell them what's happening and then go find somebody else that can help you stay well so um so yeah i moved and I stayed sober and girls started to ask me to sponsor them. And I was like, what, you know, and I, and I got to, I got to work with some girls and some of them stayed sober and some of them didn't, but I did. Right. And I don't, um, uh, it's, it's been a wild ride. It's been a wild ride. It's been amazing and fantastic and terrifying and terrible things have happened and great things have happened. And, and um, I watched my I watched my son walk into the program um, a couple of years back, and 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 he's clean and sober. And uh, I, 
my family tree is full of alcoholism, full, full, full of it. So my son and I are breaking the cycle one day at a time. And to be able to have that happen in our lives and be able to watch his, the lights come on in his face and, and him get his life back and, and his relationships back. And is, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, that I'm so grateful that I, that I am here for. I want to spend the last little bit of my time talking about something that happened to me in the last year and a half. So I obviously have been sober a little bit and I've had periods of seasons of sobriety where I've been really active and in the book and I've had seasons of sobriety where I haven't. And up until the pandemic, I wasn't in the book as often as I should have been. I just wasn't like life's good. You get busy. I'm going to meetings. I'm working like I'm doing stuff like I'm doing stuff. And my life's pretty good and I feel okay. And I don't feel like anything's really bad about my program, but I ended up um, in a um, pretty intense big book workshop, the Fledgling Society Wednesday night big book workshop. I jumped in because God's funny right before step four. And and I have been carrying a resentment around about my mom for a very long time. My mom and I have a pretty, not today, but for a long time, we had a pretty tumultuous relationship. It was difficult. It was challenging. You know, adult children of alcoholics with opiate issues as parents could be challenging to deal with when you're sober and, uh, and you try to set up boundaries and you try to take care of yourself. And, and we, we, uh, we spent a lot of years not talking and she was clearly on my resentment list, clearly on more than once she's been on a resentment list, but this time she was really, really on the resentment list. And the way this workshop works and the way the people in this workshop work and the way the leader of this workshop works is there's no hiding. There's no hiding. There's no like, maybe I'll do this later. Maybe there's this, maybe there's that. Especially if you go directly to the workshop leader and you ask him some questions. (laughs) He's going to tell you very directly um, what he thinks you should do. And and because I respect this man and his sobriety and and the way that he lives his life, I listen. And I knew what to do. I just didn't want to do it. I've been sober long enough to know what I'm supposed to do about a resentment. And I tell the the girls that I sponsor what to do about a resentment. So I knew what to do, but I'd been angry for a really long time and I didn't want to let it go. And what happened is, is her sister passed away of this disease. And I decided that what adult women do is they call their mothers when their sister dies and they give them their condolences. And I hadn't spoken to her for a couple of years. So I called her up and I said, mom, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about that, Jackie. I'm sorry about what happened. And you guys, we've been through a lot of stuff. And, and, and my mom has for a long time not accepted her part in anything. But my mom apologized to me for the things that had happened in our relationship. My mom said she was sorry for the things that, some of the things that she had done and some of the things that she had said. And that was all I needed to be able to take the willingness that that, that workshop had given me and just open it up the rest of the way, right? So I hopped on a plane and I flew to Texas and I made amends to my parents. I sat at my parents' kitchen table and I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've been angry with you. I'm sorry I've been resistant. I'm sorry I haven't acted like a grown-up woman should act about some of the things that are happening. And, 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 uh, and it just changed everything. It just changed everything. It's, it's being in the book, being in the book, being in the book. Like we go through the book line by line, page by page. It takes us a year to get through the whole thing. We start um, at the preface and we go all the way to, to the end of the first 164 pages and we take our time and we're slow and we pick things apart and we do the steps all together as this big group. And it's this powerful, amazing experience. And I want to say that if you haven't done those steps in a little while, oh my gosh, do them. 
If you think that you've got everything that handled that you need to handle and you've said everything that you need to say and you've done everything that you need to done, you probably haven't. There's probably something in there that you're hanging on to because we do that stuff, even when we know better, just do it. Like my, I had a good program before I did that, but what I have today is just like this. It's so amazing. So I talk to my mom every Sunday on the phone for half an hour and I've been to see her three times. And, and we, it, it's, she has, God is so crazy. Like the things God will do when you bring, when you bring an honest, open desire to God and you ask for help and you're willing to take however that help comes back at you, even if it doesn't look like you want it to, and you're willing to work with what he gives you, you just change things in a way that's so amazing. Like I, if you had told me a year and a half ago that I would be speaking to my mom, much less want to speak to my mom, I would have told you you were on crack. On crack, good crack, because no, it's <laughs> not happening. It's <laughs> not happening. It's not happening. And here's what happened after I got less angry at my mom. My sponsor said, you were really angry. And my husband said, you were really angry. And my older son said, you were really angry. And I was like, I was, but I was. And so like the grace of God will take up as much room as you give it, right? If I give God this much room, if I do step four and I get say six amends and I like, I give him this much room, he'll take it. He'll take whatever you give him. But if I do it all, if I do all the amends, if I do all the work, if I do all the stuff that I'm supposed to do, if I stay willing and I say sorry when I'm wrong and I act like a lady and I talk to my mom like she's an important person in my life and I put behind us the things that have happened in the past because there's not a damn thing we can do about those things anyway and I conduct myself like a lady as I move forward with her so we can create good memories, God will take it all. He will fill it all the way up. But you got to give it to him. you got to give it to him. He can't give it to you if you don't get the crap out of the way. There's no room for it. So it's just, it's, it's such a powerful, amazing, fantastic thing to be able to get rid of that garbage, to not live in shame, to look at myself in the mirror when I put my makeup on and not feel like, oh, you know, I don't want to die today. I don't want to, um, I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be, um, I just, it's just hope. That's what that grace gives you. Does it just give you hope? And I wake up, I wake, I love being sober. I mean, I loved being sober before, don't get me wrong. Like I, like I said, it, it's not like my life was terrible, but now it's just like, it's just better. It's just better. And what that lets, leads me to believe is that it can continue to get better. Like there's no ceiling on good, right? Like I can just keep growing. I can keep getting better. I can keep doing these things. I can keep building my relationship with my mom. I can help other people. I can like, I can do all these things one day at a time because I don't take a drink today. And it's so amazing. I woke up this morning and I didn't want to drink. I knew by seven in the morning what I was going to drink, how much it was going to cost, how I was going to screw the checkbook to get it because we never had enough money. And then I would drag everybody through the day because I didn't drink in the morning until the end of the day, unless it was the weekends that I would start earlier. Let's be real. Or if it was a holiday, come on. But like, I don't, that's not what I think about when I wake up this morning. When I wake up in the morning now, what I think about is, hey God, what am I supposed to do today? Please direct my thinking. Help me, no self-pity, no worry, no anger, no like, how do we do this? How do you, how do we jump in the car together and get through the day and do some good deeds without getting caught and get to the end of the day acting like a lady? That's my sponsor used to say that, do a good deed and don't get caught. And I love credit, that's not easy for me, <laughs> right? Or he'd say, slow down and let God catch up. Because I'd be way up here, like, God. And he'd be way back here going, hello, 
is this see this amends right here see this so it's it's just it, it it's a blessing to be sober it's a blessing to stand in front of you guys it's a blessing to um we're all miracles we're all miracles you're a miracle everybody in here is a damn miracle and all we have to do are a few simple things one day at a time and like again like i don't have to think about not drinking for the rest of my life i just have to think about not drinking today and i can do that i can do that and sometimes i got to go to bed early because the day's too much <laughs> sometimes i got to eat some ice cream and go to bed at 7:30 because but, but i didn't drink today right like and and that's okay too Nobody expects me to be perfect in here. Nobody expects me to have it all under control. Nobody expects me to have all the answers to everything, except maybe me sometimes. I think I've been sober this long I should have all my shit together. <laughs> I don't how it works. There's an answer for everything in here, whether it's in the book or whether it's in the fellowship, whether it's with somebody who's been through what I haven't yet and can help walk me through that or whatever. It's all here. You just gotta pick it up and use it. So please pick it up and use it. And I think I'm going to shut up now. Thank you. <laughs>